Father, we do come before you and we ask you to search our hearts, to, to know our anxious thoughts, to examine us, Lord God, that you would reveal to us where we are with you, that our hearts would be laid bare before you and that you would mold them and change them so that we would be like your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that apart from faith in your Son, apart from faith, it's impossible to please you. And uh, we want to trust you in everything we do. And I pray as we come to your word right now, we would trust you to work in our hearts that which is pleasing, Lord God. We thank you for this time together. We pray you would bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully, uh, most of you here have decided to follow Jesus. You have been convicted of your sin. You have turned from that and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord. And you have been born again. You're a new creation in Christ. And you've recognized that you've been changed. You're not who you used to be. And within that, uh, when you want to follow Jesus, having been saved, you want to follow him. You want to serve him. You want to do his will. And we're convicted when we're not. We're convicted when our hearts stray to our own selfishness whether it's uh, worldly selfishness or religious selfishness, whatever it might be. Hopefully, your desire is to make him a priority in your life, to be about his business. Now, sometimes we can have that desire in our lives to have him as a priority, and yet we still may be experiencing his discipline in our lives. We may not have peace in our lives. We may have difficulties that are not simply trials. They're difficulties that the Lord has allowed to address things in our lives. Today, we're going to see why is the Lord not blessing his work through me? We're going to see that those in the book of Haggai were desiring to do the right thing, and yet God still was not blessing what they were doing, and there's a reason for it. And it flows into the flow of thought of this book that we would understand how to rightly walk before the Lord. And we're going to see today how to experience genuine, true, biblical blessing. To turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 19, and I'm just going to review the context initially of the broader context, but then we're going to go through what we've seen up this point up to where we're at today in chapter 2, verse 10. Now we know after the conquest of Canaan that the Jews were in the land 490 years, and after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided because of his sin, the northern kingdom being Israel and the southern kingdom being Judah. And during that time, leading up to the exile of both the northern and southern kingdoms, the prophets were sharing over and over again that they needed to repent, that Israel and Judah would need to repent or God would bring about his discipline and his destruction upon them. And because God, and because they did not repent, Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and soon after, Judah would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And we have that final uh, of three deportations in which the city is destroyed and the walls torn down and the the temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. Well, what we saw uh, in history then was in 539 B.C., the Persians defeated the Babylonians who had brought the Israelites to Babylon. And as prophesied, Isaiah... And prophesied in Isaiah, Cyrus changed his policy towards captive peoples, and God led him to bring about a changed desire that he would have let the people go to go serve the Lord and rebuild the temple. Now we see that in Ezra chapters 1 through 3, and about 50,000 
But what we see in Ezra's chapters 1 through 3 is that Cyrus, led by the Lord, allowed the captive peoples to return. And about 50,000 devout Jews chose to return to rebuild the temple. They were the ones who had been comfortable. They'd become comfortable in Babylon. And yet they decided to leave to go do God's will to rebuild the temple, to worship the Lord. And within a year, they had founded, uh, laid the foundation of the temple. We see that in Ezra chapter 3. Unfortunately, Ezra also records that through some difficulties, they stopped building the temple. And then 16 years went by, and uh, they failed to restart the work during that time. And that's where our passage comes in. And the year is now 520 B.C., and that's where Haggai begins to address the Lord through Haggai begins to address them. It's been 16 years since they laid the foundation, but they had not been about the Lord's work. Look back in chapter 1, and we'll see in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves, you yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Well, what was wrong here? The Lord was calling them on their misplaced priorities. They were not about the reason they had left Babylon. They were about their own houses, and and they were beautifying their own houses. They were running to their own houses. In effect, they were focusing on their own lives rather than on what God had called them out of Babylon to do, which was to rebuild the temple. And within that, we see God began to first identify their misplaced priorities, and he encouraged them and exhorted them through Haggai and commanded them to set their heart on their ways, to consider their ways. Look at uh, verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Set your heart upon the path of your feet. Set your heart upon your life. Consider your ways. There was an overwhelming dissatisfaction. They were not uh, able to be satisfied with what they brought in, whether it was food or clothing or whatever it might be. And then we see that God's disciplinary hand was certainly upon them. Look at verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. God had brought forth his disciplinary hand, whom the Lord loves. He disciplines. We see that in Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12. And unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. They were building their own houses, but they were not about his house. And what were they to do? Back, look at verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and glorified, said the Lord. Be about the business that I called you unto when you left Babylon to rebuild the temple. Be about my business, my house, and not your house. Now we saw this temple imagery, and we looked at that in the last two sermons, last three sermons actually. We saw that although God does not dwell in temples of human hands, 
The purpose of the tabernacle, the temple, was to give a visible picture of heavenly realities. And it was also that God would identify with his people and personify his presence, that they could see the manifestation of his glory. And the earthly temple was a shadow and copy of the heavenly temple, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. And within this physical temple, there were sacrifices offered by the priests, according to the law that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. And now the reality is we believers are the, Holy, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. And therefore, we are to glorify God with ourselves, with our bodies. And so how does this point to us? How does this point to us? This speaking, telling them to be about his business. The same thing applies to us. Consider your ways. Are you about his business or are you about your own business? Really, that's what it's about. Are you about his business? Are you about the thing that he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? That you would become more and more like Jesus Christ? Are you about the individual building up of yourself through the word of God with a submissive, humble spirit and then also in the body of Christ as we grow together, as the word works in our hearts. Are you about the things of his building so that he would be glorified? Or is living your own life more important? If you're a true believer, now some of you are and some of you aren't, but if you're a true believer, God is going to discipline. He is a gracious God. He loves those his, who, who are his. and He disciplines those whom he loves. And so we are to be about the building of his temple. We are to be about those. We are like living stones being built upon the foundation. Christ Jesus, the cornerstone, that we would offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ, that we would walk rightly with the Lord and he would be glorified. And so I ask you this, is is his work of his ministry in your life and at your home, work, church priority for you? If not, you're going to be dissatisfied if you're a true believer. He's going to bring his disciplinary hand on your life. And so consider your ways. Be about his business so that he would be pleased and glorified. And then what was interesting, we saw after this admonition to these people who were his, but yet there was a distance to those people, we saw that they responded in chapter 1. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. They obeyed God's word through Haggai as God had sent Haggai. God brings people to share his word. God brought Haggai. He brought the prophets. He brings pastor teachers to share his word to equip the saints. He does it his way, not your way or my way. And they listened to it. They listened to the words of God through Haggai the prophet as the, as, as the Lord had sent him. And notice, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They listened, we saw that word, listened with the intent of obeying. They wanted to obey what they heard. You know, when I come to church, when I hear the word of God, I come going, yes, I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to hear, I want to hear, I want to do, I want to do what you want me to do, Lord God. I don't come with an attitude, hmm, we'll see, hmm, you know. I come with an attitude of, Lord, I want to obey your word. I want to hear it. I want to grow in it. And they listened with the intent of obeying. And they also revered the Lord. Notice what it says here in verse 12. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of the Haggai, the prophet, the Lord, and the people, had as 
as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. What's that look like these days? I don't see much reverence for the Lord. Do you see much reverence for the Lord? They showed reverence for God. They showed a fear and an honor and a respect for the living God. They showed reverence for him. They responded rightly to what God had said through Haggai. They were considering their ways, and they realized they were not about God's work. They were about their own business. They responded as believers should respond. You look at the, those who are regard reproof in Proverbs. They are those who are following on the path of life, right? Those who regard reproof. And so they listened to it. And then God gave a tremendous response to them. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission or message of the Lord to the people saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. You want to obey me? I am with you. Now, certainly he was their God before, but he wasn't with them in their endeavors. And when you are out your own, about your own business as a believer, God is not with you in that. But when you want to obey him with a right heart, with reverence and fear, he is with you. He is with you. And we see that. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And then notice the Lord empowered them. He empowered them. He stirred them up. Same word that was used when he stirred up their spirits to leave Babylon to go serve him. Same thing. Then the Lord, it says here, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They did what God asked them to do. They were about his business. They were about his business. And when we are about hearing and fearing the Lord, he encourages us, he encourages us and empowers us And we will obey him in that context with a right heart, as we see they did. Now that leads us to, excuse me, the second sermon that we see in the book of Haggai in chapter 2, where these believers are, a couple weeks have gone by, and they are about God's will. They have set their priorities straight. They're doing the right thing, and they are now, and now have become discouraged. They have become discouraged. They became discouraged because of comparison. There were those within the group there who had seen the former temple. It was a grand, marvelous temple, Solomon's temple. And they had seen it. And what was being created right now was nothing in comparison. It was nothing in comparison. And the implication was they were not cowering, but they were weak and they were fearing. Because God will say, be courageous and strong and do not fear. The implication was that they were looking at this dismal work that they were doing and they were getting discouraged, right? Now, isn't that it? You decide to be about God's work. You're finally submitting your heart with your family and raising them, doing the right thing no matter how difficult it is. You're finally committing yourself completely to the Lord at your work, doing your work hardly unto Him, not unto men. You're finally submitting your heart humbly at church, obeying as the Lord leads you and and humbly submitting to Him. And then all of a sudden you don't see anything going on. No change. You see that it doesn't look so great, the work that's going on. And it's easy to compare as you look at other things. Other things that God has done and were actually good. And so here they're discouraged. And so God is gracious and he encourages them through his word that they should not judge what they see, but be strong and do not fear because he is with them. It's his work and it has a glorious end. He shares his presence and his power. 
and his glorious future plans. And as we see in the book of Haggai, they are not to desp- or, or Zechariah, they are not to despise the day of the small things. They are to trust the Lord no matter what it looks like because what he is doing is not what they see. And by the way, if you focus on what you see, you will always be discouraged. Set your mind and your focus on the things above and the things above. So that leads us to now the third sermon in the book of Haggai at our passage where two months have passed and we see this in the latter portion of the passage, but God's blessing has not come yet. They were still in a drought. They were still dissatisfied. They had made God's work a priority. They were encouraged and yet God was not blessing their work. Why was he not blessing it? And that leads us to what we're going to see today. Why about God's will is, is he not blessing what we're doing? And I'm not talking about physical blessing. For the Israelites, it was physical blessing. We'll talk about that. He had made a covenant with them. If they were obedient, they'd be blessed physically. If they weren't, they wouldn't be blessed. Okay. Now for us, we see his blessing, as we'll see in a moment, in the context of a right relationship with him, where we're walking rightly and there is peace and there is joy and there is his, uh, his presence in the midst of that, as we see. So take a look here at our passage, Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food with cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If anyone is unclean who is unclean from, from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. It's unclean. Today, some of you might be in deep agony. You're going through physical, emotional, spiritual trials. You believe you've done everything right before the Lord, and yet it doesn't seem to be being blessed in the context of walking with him. You're about his business, but God's discipline seems to still be on your life. Well, for the Israelites, that was the case here. And so what God does is ask them two questions to reveal what's going on in their lives. And these two questions are very pertinent for us to reveal what's going on in our lives, what God is doing and allowing to happen because of what we're doing and what he's not allowing to happen because of what we're doing. And I think, first of all, we're going to need to realize that sin is hideous and it defiles everything, everything. On the 24th month of the ninth, excuse me, on the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. Now he gives the exact date here, and this is really important, because this date here is December 18th, 520 B.C., and make a special note of that because this is an important date. This is an important date. It's gonna, it, the dates are given for a reason, and it's going to play into our understanding and interpretation of this passage later on. It's very important that we understand this date. And so with that in mind, two months now have passed since they were discouraged over the size of the work and those things. 
And God encouraged them. Two months have passed. They're about his business. They're doing his work. But yet, evidently, as we'll see, God's discipline was still upon them. Notice the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai saying, verse 10, this is the word of Yahweh. This is the word of the great I am. And what, is, what does he say? Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, ask now the priests for a ruling. Ask the priest for a ruling. God is telling Haggai to ask the priests for a ruling, as we're going to see, concerning the ceremonial law. Remember, this was a common practice. This was prescribed in the scriptures. Uh, indeed, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 and 9, the Israelites were to go to the Levitical priests if they had issues, questions too difficult for their courts to address. And so they would go to the Levitical priests for a ruling and notice there are two questions that are asked. Two questions that are asked. Notice the first question. This actually will reveal, I believe, that holiness is not transferable. Look at verse 12. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food or wine or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Now, we need to remember the context in which this is being spoken. This is being spoken to Jews who are in a covenant with the Lord. And the Lord had made it clear in his word, in his law, what things were holy, what things were not holy. He made it clear to them. And those were pictures of how God is holy and set apart and how we need to approach him based on his prescribed uh, method, which is through ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so here he's talking about the ceremonial law and so they were to go to a priest and ask them uh, if they were to take holy if they were to take uh, holy meat. This is meat that was sanctified, set apart. It was set apart, and they were to touch bread with fold or cooked food or wine or other food. Will that stuff become holy because of the contact with the holy meat? That's the question, right? And look at the answer the priest give. And the priest answered and said, no. Right? Very interesting question. Well, what is God trying to reveal here by asking this question? Remember, God is using an illustration here by asking the priest a question. Basically, is that which God has deemed holy, if it touches other things, does it make them holy by association? The answer is no. And what's the point? Is holiness transferable? And we're going to see specifically here, they had the understanding most likely that because they were about God's work, his holy work, that their lives were then holy. But the reality is that's not the case if there's sin. You see, holiness is not transferable. You see, you're not right before God by virtue of doing holy work or being around someone who is holy. You see, if you do God's holy work, does that make you holy? Not at all. Not at all. This is a trap that man can fall into, thinking that if we do holy things, that that makes us holy. Outward holiness does not equate to inward holiness. Holiness is not transferable. If I come to church, carry a Bible, study, have devotions, live an obedient life, these things in and of themselves do not transfer holiness to me. I don't become holy because I do what God says. It doesn't make me holy at all. Not at all. 
Unfortunately, most of the world's religions teach this, that if you do certain things, that's what makes you holy. You see, but holiness is not transferable. If I go in the garage, that doesn't make me a car, right? If I'm in church, that doesn't make me a believer, right? Just because I'm here or doing these things. If I'm doing his work all the time, that doesn't make me holy. And again, most of the world's false religions declare this, that you need to, like they would say, be baptized to be right before God. You need to do something. You need to be circumcised to be right before God. You need to receive grace mediated by the church to be right before God. You need to work hard to be right before God. You need to go through these prescribed rituals to be acceptable. But that is not true. No external act on our part, even what God calls true believers to do, will make you holy. You see, there's only one inward act that brings inward holiness and then a manifestation in the life. And that is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You could do all the works of God's law every day long, and it will never do anything for you, spiritually speaking. You can do all the stuff God calls you to do, come in here, whatever it might be, whatever you think is right, whatever it is, and it doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you holy. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Because of the works of the law, no flesh, no flesh will be justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift through his grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. When you acknowledge rightly and truly you are a sinner in need of salvation and you go to Jesus Christ, God who took on human flesh and died for your sins and rose from the dead and you call upon him for salvation, you receive his righteousness. He pays the price. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we are declared righteous. We are holy. We are now saints because of the acts of Christ on the cross for us, the act of Christ on the cross for us, not because of anything we have done. It is through faith that we become righteous and like Christ. In Titus chapter 3, turn to Titus chapter 3 actually. Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. But when the kindness of God, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not by any deeds of righteous things that you've ever done. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that he saved us. He saved us through Jesus Christ. You see, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The only way one becomes holy is through a relationship with a holy God, having your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. We are all defiled in sin, 
And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you are defiled in sin, and God will call upon you to pay the penalty for your sins. But he sent his son instead, and you can be holy by completely trusting in him alone. That is how we become holy. There's no ceremonies. It's one inward act that brings about the potential of outward righteous deeds at times for believers and ultimately full glorification where we are holy and blameless forever. So with this in mind, we were brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We were set apart through his word. And God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And he uses his word as we saw in 1 Peter to do that. He uses his word to grow us in respect to salvation. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, he says, But we always give thanks, verse 13, for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So if I'm about God's work, does that make me right with God? No. What makes me right with God is if my sin has been dealt with. And if I'm a believer, as we're going to see, it's being dealt with on a continual basis. You see? So back to our passage in Haggai. Let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself to be holy? Do you consider yourself to be righteous? On what basis are you? Is it because you're doing something? You did good deeds? You came to church? What is the reason? If it's anything other than trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are in deep trouble. And yet God came, Jesus came to save sinners such as you and I. Okay, now notice not only is holiness not transferable, he gives a second question that reveals that sin is transferable. God's holiness doesn't rub off on you by doing his stuff, but sin defiles everything in the life of a believer, by the way, as we're going to see. Verse 13 of Haggai chapter 2. Then Haggai said, if, any, if one is unclean from a corpse and touches any of these, and this is the question again, go ask the priest, right? Go ask the priest this question, right? And unclean from a corpse and touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. So you could be unclean by touching a corpse, okay? And there was a, there was a period of time and a prescription to become clean again. This is a ceremonial law. And so if someone was unclean and they touched these other things, the holy meat, whatever it might be, is it unclean? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And God is showing through this a principle. You see, if someone is unclean, you notice he says from a corpse. I think this is really important in understanding what's going on here. Leviticus 21 reveals that they were not to touch corpse, corpses. How do you say corpses, plural? I don't know. Corpse, corpse, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out later, and it's heaven for me at least, maybe. Um, they're not to touch corpses. Corpses, that's it, right? Okay. They're not to touch corpses, otherwise they would be ceremonially unclean. And if anyone was unclean from touching a corpse, that's what's being spoken of here. If he touches any of those things, most likely speaking of the holy meat, and so on. And the answer is from the priest, end of 13 is, and the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. It will become unclean. We have a very simple point being made for the Israelites and for us. Just because you're doing God's work doesn't make you holy. 
But you, if you are unholy because of sin, it makes everything unholy. You see what I'm saying? One pastor writes, what is the only exception to this? Jesus. He touched a lot of unclean people, lepers, the women bleeding with problem, corpses, etc. They did not make him unclean. Instead, he made them clean. He healed them. That's the only exception. So let me illustrate this in ways that we can understand. I have a, uh, I have a cold here, right? And if I um, hang out a lot with my wife, she might get sick. And by the way, she's sick, right? It spreads, doesn't it? It spreads. It doesn't stay to me, right? You see, if I put a drop, drop of red dye in a glass of water, it doesn't turn clear, does it? It turns red, doesn't it? Everything is, is uh, affected by it. Sin is transferable. Sin always defiles. Sin will always defile you and I, brothers and sisters. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians when he was addressing pride concerning someone sitting in their midst? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, the reality is we may not see it, but there are a lot of defiled people and a lot of defiled churches. And Corinth was actually one for a time that was defiled. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. This is speaking of a, of a person that has done some bad things and they were arrogant and saying, hey, we're, we're very accepting of this rather than addressing it. <coughs> and he says, and you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I and my part, though absent from the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him. Whoa, judging? Wow. Judged him who has, who has so committed this as though I were present. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with power in our Lord, power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that he may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. By the way, that's what church discipline does. It works on the heart of people. The goal is that they be saved. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? If you put leaven in a lump of dough, what happens? Does it leaven just a part of it? It leavens the whole lump. The whole lump. Clean out the old leaven that you may become a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has also has been sanctified. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven. He's going to give some illustrations of this leaven, by the way. It's sin. The old leaven of malice, wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, no one has a little bit of leprosy. They're completely a leper, aren't they? Sin completely defiles us. A little leaven level leavens the whole lump. So what is the sin that God is now back in Haggai saying that these guys have committed? Why does he use this illustration? What is the sin that they're going to need to address? Notice he uses the illustration of touching a corpse, a dead body. The Lord could have used the illustration, as I mentioned, of leprosy. He could have used woman's menstrual uncleanness. He could have used other reasons in this, but he chose to speak of touching a corpse or a dead thing. 
Now, why did he say that? Well, it's interesting he uses that. And I believe based on Israel's history, this is most likely the area in which they were sinning. And what do I mean by that? Were they touching dead people? Yes, but I don't mean in the physically dead, but the spiritually dead. Israel had a history of associating with those who do not believe. And most likely they had fallen into that sin again. Israel continually and habitually mingled with those who were not saved. That's why it's so important, as we're going to see in a moment, that we raise our kids rightly, we protect them from that, and we teach them not to mingle. And this association throughout Scripture was one that God had to address because they would take on the practices of those they would mingle with. For instance, in the book of Judges, it reveals that Israel did not obey God as commanded in Numbers, 20, Numbers 33, 51 through 56. And because of that, they mingled with dead things, the Canaanites, and ultimately brought God's disciplinary hand upon them. And folks, it's quite interesting also if you study the book of Ezra. The first chapters are contemporary to what we're speaking of here, verses 1 to 6. Ezra recounts the first return from exile during the time of Haggai and Zechariah. That's what we're studying. Then in chapters 7 through 10, we have the account of the second group of exiles returning from Babylon, which includes Ezra. And it's interesting that although this happened some years later, it reveals a problem, which I believe was the same problem back in Haggai's time. Turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. I'm going to read a bit here, so... Ezra chapter 9, now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. So remember, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Okay. Teach your kids those little Bible songs. They might remember them when they're older, right? I'll go back again, verse 1. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And when I heard this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled, as we're speaking. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me. These are the people who, who, who tremble at God's word, by the way. And I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed. And I am embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. What's their iniquity? They mingled with the non-believers of the land. They mingled with them. And he says here, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt 
And on account of our iniquities, our, we, our kings, our princes, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to protect captivity, and to plunder, to open shame as it is this day. <laughs> but now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and, a, and give us a peg in his holy place. There's a moment, a window that you let us come here. That our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us us little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to, to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give, us revi- to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, to give the wall to Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an is unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which I which have filled it from from end and to with and to end and with their impurity. And he says here, So now do not give your daughters to their sons, take or, or, nor take daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity. Don't seek what the world seeks. Don't seek worldly peace and prosperity. Don't do it. That you may be strong and eat good things in the land and leave it as an inheritance for your sons forever. And after that is all has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou our God has requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and thou hast given us escape, escaped remnant at this. Shall we again break thy commandments and intermarry with the peoples whose these commit these abominations? Wouldest thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord, God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant. As to this day, behold, we are before thee in our guilt for no one can stand before thee because of this. Pretty clear that they had intermingled. And not only had they intermingled, but also they sought the peace and prosperity of those who didn't know Christ. They're touching dead things. Ezra did so, as we see in their exile. And it's apparent that that had been going on for a while, which I believe was part of the issue with Haggai. Evidently, they were touching dead things. Remember, they were they're about their own houses, beautifying their own houses rather than working on the Lord's house. And evidently, they were still associating with those in the land. Listen to what Ezra says again, verse 12. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity. Never seek the peace and prosperity of the world. Never. You're believers. You've been called out of this. If you do, you're touching dead things. You're touching dead things. Could it be the Israelites were seeking peace and prosperity of those who did not know Christ? Seeking the, we do it in our ways through, through trying to educate our kids a certain way, compromising where they're at, whatever it might be. We try to do that in seeking security in our houses, whatever it might be in our hearts. Nothing wrong with the house. But it's where our hearts are at. We try to seek peace and prosperity through our associations with those who are not saved. One pastor writes, Christian, 
Are you touching what, what's dead? You know what I'm talking about. We live in such a sinful world, don't we? Such a sin-cursed place that on every hand you can go into the newsstands without being hit in the face with, it sin, with sin. You can't turn on a television or the radio. You can't drive in your car without seeing a billboard. It's coming from everywhere. All the sin in the world, and it's hard to walk the narrow way and remain undefiled. We are to be in the world, but not of it, if you're a believer. What did Bob read earlier? Turn to 2 Corinthians. Paul makes it very clear in the New Testament context that if we are yoking ourselves with non-believers, our relationship with God is totally messed up. Totally totally messed up. Second Corinthians chapter 6. One of the first things the Lord did for me when I got saved, well, I thought I was saved before, but I wasn't because I could tell. I, I wanted to hang out with non-believers because they were just like me because I was a non-believer. Even though, thought, even though I was a Christian, I thought I was. And the first thing he did when I got saved was he caused my heart to think differently about them. I was not mean to them or unkind. I, I was gracious to them, but I didn't hang out with them anymore. Anymore. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now, primarily the context, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, are these unbelieving false prophets, I believe. They were shunning Paul after their own desires. I think it's probably what's going on if you read the context of 2 Corinthians. But the principles go much past this. For what partnership have lawlessness, or righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none. There is no fellowship when you're with a non-believer. Zero. Zero. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The only thing a believer has in common with an unbeliever is when they're in a sinful mindset, by the way. Then you've got commonality. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Guess what? We're the temple of the living God, Right? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Come out of the midst of the non-believing relationships that are corrupting you and do not touch what is unclean. And notice what he says, and I will welcome you. The implication is I'm not welcoming you right now while you're doing that. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, the promises of a right relationship with the Lord, by the way, brother, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Don't touch dead things. We lean on our understanding. We say, well, I've got to do this and this to do this and this and this. And we defile ourselves and our families. Don't touch dead things. It affects everything. And it's not just simply the obvious unbelieving stuff. It's, it's the, the mindset, their peace and prosperity. Don't seek that. Don't seek that. You know, people who don't know Christ are still made in God's image. And there's a lot of nice people out there. There's a lot of fun people. But God says, you're going to get burned if you associate. We are not to yoke ourselves with those who do not know Christ. And that's the same thing in the church. There are some in here that do not know Christ. Be kind to them. Be gracious. Don't yoke yourself with them or you will become like them. Don't assume every person in here is a Christian. 
You can tell over a while what they think about what they're focused on. And if it's not Christ, be kind and gracious. Pray for them. Be willing to share Christ, but don't yoke yourself with them, especially teens. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's better to be by yourself and righteous than corrupted. And there's that, there's all going throughout so many places. Well, they need friends. They need friends. No, they don't need friends. They need to obey God. They need to obey God. That's what they need to do. I've heard people sending their kids to public school for the purpose of having more friends and things. No, no, no. Now, some people can't afford uh, not to do that. I understand that. But when you know the influences that are there, you need to think about that twice. Don't touch dead things. It affects your relationship with Christ. It affects everything. Now, the church is guilty in this also. This current man-centered, earthly, wise ways to win people to Christ, worldly wisdom. Churches can be soaked and complete with leaven. First Corinthians, they were a Corinthian church was believers. They were leavened. But, it's, but they did confess. Second Corinthians, praise the Lord. Wholesale spiritual adultery in the churches these days to try and win those who don't know Christ. Leaning on their own understanding and wisdom. Don't touch dead things. Don't touch dead things. Don't use the world's way to do God's work. Turn to James chapter 4. There are so many influences around us, brothers and sisters. We are living in Canaan. It's everywhere. I'm not talking about being a self-righteous, jerky person. I'm talking about being gracious and kind to those who do not know Christ, having compassion for them, praying for them, being kind to them, but not yoking with them. Not yoking. I've told my kids often, no, you should not be yoking for their good. I learned it very, I learned it the hard way. Bad company corrupts good morals. The companion of fools will suffer harm. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, you spiritual adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now, the only time I was a friend with the world was when my heart was not right, folks. And I can tell you that right now. It's when your heart is not right. Confess, be forgiven. God will forgive you. Do not touch what is dead, or you defile everything. Everything. Let's go back to our passage in in the book of Haggai. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, asks now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with that fold, or cooked wine, cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. And then here is the indictment. Here's God's indictment. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there. Everything is defiled. Everything. 
this people, this nation, every work of their hands and what they offer there, it's all defiled. Don't delude yourself thinking everything's good with God if you are touching dead things. It's not good. Now, God is good. He's disciplining. He loves them. These are the ones that want to follow him. And all of us will be tempted with this. But think about the non-believer. The non-believer who does these things and thinks everything's great, right? They think they have a great religion. Not the case. James 1.26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. That man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Unstained. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. Sin contaminates everything. It's hideous. And yet, whether little bit sin, big sin, it, it all contaminates. And God will forgive and you'll be cleansed the moment you confess. He who confesses his transgressions and forsakes them will find compassion. What about Achan in Joshua chapter 7? Everything was defiled, right? What about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, the book of Acts? You can read that. Folks, we have a culture that has turned the grace of God into licentiousness in the church. We have defiled churches everywhere. And yet we individually can be defiled when we associate with the things of the world. Remember, these Jews were initially not disobedient. They were obedient. They're about his work. And then they stopped working, disobedient. God convicted them. They got about his work. Then they got discouraged. God encouraged them. But yet they had not dealt with these issues, and God is now dealing with this here. If you have unconfessed habitual sin, unwilling to give it up, all your work of your hands is unclean. Some of you have yoked your hearts with unbelievers. You hang out with those who do not know Christ, and yet you think because you come to church or whatever it might be that you're okay. Everything's defiled. Confess. Some of you are coming to be counseled, yet unwilling to give up your sin. You think because you see a pastor or a biblical counselor that everything's good, but no. Confess your sin. Are you touching dead things in your mind? Through the world's wisdom, counselors, TV, Christian radio, lots of dead things on there. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. had a visitor come here once who was telling me about a church they were going to, and they were very clearly understood it was a bad church. I said, I know this is bad, this is wrong, wrong here, here, and here, but the Lord is using me there. And I said, no, he's not. He said, yes, he is. I said, no, he's not. And I shared this passage. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Until you separate and confess... Let me tell you this bluntly. Your attempts to raise godly children defiled. Attempts to have a godly marriage defiled. Attempts to build his temple individually through Bible study prayer, unclean defiled. Attempts to build the body of Christ, his temple corporately, unclean defiled. But the good news is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us right away from all unrighteousness. Notice verse 14. Let's finish up here. 
Then Haggai said, so, answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. So is the work of their hands, every work of their hands and what they offer there. That's their worship. Their worship's defiled too. You can look at Nadab and Abihu later in Leviticus chapter 10, but they offered not according to what God had commanded. It's all defiled and they were killed. As Ezra would say, that they sinned seeking the peace and prosperity of the nations or the world. So with this in mind, what does God say to do? Look at verse 15. But now, do consider from this day forward. Do, do consider. Set your mind upon these things. Before one stone was placed another in the temple of the Lord, from the time, from the time when one, one came to grain, excuse me, from the time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures and there would only be 10, and when one came to a wine vat of, to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Now remember, consider. From the time before one stone was placed upon another, I believe he's talking about when they got back to work. Every commentator says this is referring to when they chose to come back to start working. From the time that you came back and started putting stones back on there, that's the, the grammar in there in the Hebrew seems to point to that, has anything changed? No. He's still disciplining them. Has anything changed? No. Consider God's hand is still disciplining you. The wine isn't there. The grain isn't there. Same thing. They responded to the message three months ago. Worked on the temple. But nothing's changed. Set your mind on that and look back. He says here, I smote, verse 17, every work of your hands, blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me. It's personal. It's personal. When we're disobedient, we're going to experience his discipline. Lack of contentment, spiritual doubt, drought, dryness, disciplinary, his hand upon us. Think carefully. Is that happening to you? Are you blessed? Are you joyful in the Lord? Notice what he says here now in verse 18. Do consider stay from the 24th day, excuse me, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is seed still in the barn, even, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Do consider. Do consider from this day. And again, this founded begins, I believe, from the point that they began to work again. Everyone agrees on that. Not the initial founding, but when they got back to work. Consider. Is there seed still in the barn? No. Any harvest? No. Middle of 19. Even including the fig tree, including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Any harvest? Why? You're being disciplined. You're touching dead things. You're touching dead things. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin has defiled your work, left you under God's disciplinary hand. Maybe it's a deadly attitude, ungratefulness, unforgiveness, worry, anger, fear, bitterness. Maybe you're hanging out with the dead, not personally, but maybe through TV, media, and magazines. Maybe you're talking like the dead, swearing, yelling, using ungracious words. Maybe you desire dead things to relieve the pressure of the world's way, illicit sex, drugs, alcohol, medication for depression, whatever it might be, because God's disciplining you. 
What's the solution? Back in verse 17, you did not come back to me. It's going back to Jesus for forgiveness. And rend your heart, not your garments, Joel would say. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Turn and confess and confess and you will experience true blessing. Notice our passage. Verse 18, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider is seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree. It has not borne fruit yet. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. Very interesting. Now, what's the basis of blessing? He says, from this day on, I'll bless you. What's the basis? Israel had a covenant with the, with the Lord. If they obeyed, they were blessed. If they didn't, they were cursed. He's saying, from this day on. What's so important about this day? Remember I told you to write the date down? Note it. It's exactly 70 years to the day, Jewish 360-day years, from when the Jerusalem was seized by the Babylonians. 70 years to the day. God's discipline is done. The implication is, I'm going to bless you. The implication is that they obeyed. The implication is that they obeyed. 70 years to the day. You can look in 2 Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They all record this day. You see, God made it clear, if they, if they sinned, they would, be diso- they would be cursed. If they trusted the Lord and obeyed, they would experience blessing. So what's going on here? Boy, the time is flying here. I'm rushing through this last part here, by the way. We could have had another half an hour on it, but I'm going to just bring it to a close here. The reality is, he's going to bless them from this point on. They're going to be blessed. Well, what about us? Does that mean, you know, God's going to take care of everything for us and give us a new car, house, what, is that? what does it mean for us? Throughout Scripture, we see that true blessing comes through a relationship with Abraham's seed, that's Jesus Christ. That we are truly blessed when we walk rightly with the Lord. Let me just share one passage. I had a bunch, but let me share one. Turn to uh, Romans chapter 4. You see, if you're in your sin, you're not blessed at all. You're not blessed. But if you confess your sin, you are blessed. You are blessed. Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Just as David speaks of the blessing upon the man in whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not take into an account we know you can read Matthew throughout. Those who are blessed are those who are who are mourn over their sin, who are spiritually bankrupt, who who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the blessed. Those are the blessed. We see in First Peter chapter twelve that because they're suffering, that they are blessed because God's Spirit rests upon them. They're blessed. From this day on, you can be blessed. You can be blessed by confessing any association, any things that's gone, that you've done, defiled yourself with. Confess it, be forgiven, and be blessed with a right relationship with Jesus Christ.
So then, how can we experience true blessing? We saw today that doing what God wants us to do doesn't make you holy. But sin defiles everything. Confess. Are you touching dead things? Are you touching dead things? Confess. God will forgive you. And he will bless you in your relationship as you walk in the context of forgiveness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this stern reminder, Lord God, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And forgive us, Lord God, for our sinful uh, failures in touching dead things, Lord God, whatever it might be. I pray that we would be cleansed through forgiveness of sins and we would walk rightly and we would turn away from these things. We would not seek the peace and prosperity of those who don't know Christ. We would not yoke our hearts with unbelievers. We would not uh, do so or put our kids in that place either. Lord, I just... uh, Pray that you will help us see these things and that we will turn rightly and consider our ways, that you would be glorified and honored, and that we would be blessed in our relationship with you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As the choir makes their-